This is episode 6 of Veneco Candanga, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements. I'm your host, Juan Andres Misle, and today we're beginning our program with lots of new things. We have a new theme song, courtesy of Amazonic Vibes and Simon Diaz, as well as an informant for today's episode, as this is a border edition episode, which means we're going to be discussing transitions to democracy in Venezuela and Colombia. So let me welcome our two guests for today. On one side, we have Ergon Storm Miller. He's a professor at Central Texas College and the author of Precarious Paths to Freedom, The United States, Venezuela, and the Latin American Cold War. And on the other end, we have Robert Carl, an assistant professor of history at Princeton University and the author of Forgotten Peace, Reform, Violence, and the Making of Contemporary Colombia, now available in Spanish, La Paz Olvidada. We have two authors here who have written very informative takes on the role of violence in shaping narratives of democracy during the Cold War in Latin America. And we are hoping of having a lively discussions on two countries of deep importance to the region. So without further ado, gentlemen, welcome to the show and thank you both for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. Thank you. Dr. Carl, I want to get started with you. Can you start by talking about the relationship between Colombia's political elite and the violence that tore down the reformist optimism of the 1960s? In other words, how did violence become such a prevailing legacy in the making of contemporary Colombia? Sure. One of the ways in which my book frames the problem of violence in Colombia in the 1950s and 1960s, so after the during the democratic transition that begins in 1957-58, continues through until the mid part of the 1960s. So during this period, I argue that we need to think about violence as both um, a practice and as an idea. Um, so the emphasis is really on, as you, I have already sort of indicated, violence as an idea, where these narratives about Colombia as a violent country come about. Um, so at the beginning of the period in the 1957-58, uh, um, talk about Colombian elites' encounters with violence. So the, the country is coming out of what later becomes known as la violencia, so the worst internal conflict in Latin America in the middle part of the 20th century, which began as a uh, project of conservative party-led state violence against the majority liberal party, and then sort of devolves into liberal conservative fighting out in the countryside, sort of the exacerbation of local feuds over land or over violence from uh, even the civil wars of the late 19th century. And as the country's transitioning to democracy in 1957-58, the, the elites really are talking and talking about and realizing that they don't have an idea of what's gone on in the countryside. So part of what I write about in the first chapters of Forgotten Peace is this elite encounter with violence. Um, now, fast forwarding to sort of the end of the democratic transition in the middle part of uh, the 1960s, you get a group of reformist intellectuals who have participated in maybe not the peace project of the late 1950s, but in sort of Alliance for Progress era development programs in the 1960s. Um, as you said, they experience a profound sense of disillusionment with the political process, with the possibilities of state-led reform and um, democratic reform as well, democratic politics. So they've given us this term to describe the rest of, or the previous period in Colombian history. So the idea of la violencia, the violence with capital letters that we have as a product of um, these elites. And on the other side, on the countryside, um, there's a group of peasants in uh, the Department of Tolima, Department of Huila, so sort of the central Colombian countryside, who experienced their own process of disillusionment with um, democratic and reformist politics in this period. And in 1964, um, they're attacked by the state and by the 
1966, that their resistance to state violence takes on the name FARC. So this is the uh, the origins of the FARC insurgency. They're very much a, a provincial or rural project out in the countryside that isn't interested in gaining national power. They're affiliated with the Colombian Communist Party, but not really its armed active wing. You get a younger generation of Colombians coming out from the cities in the late 1960s and the, the early 1970s who are, you know, they're excited to make a new Cuban revolution, excited to make a revolution out in the Colombian countryside, um, where they just essentially get bored sitting out in the jungle and getting rained on, just sort of waiting for the revolution to come to them rather than uh, going to make the revolution themselves. And from that uh, experience, some members of uh, the armed communist movement in Colombia wanted to form the M-19 guerrilla group in the 1970s, which has a really outsized effect, I argue, at the end of the book, in how we understand um, violence in Colombia as predominantly a popular response to exclusion in national politics. Okay, now I want to open up this discussion to Dr. Miller, whose book, Precarious Paths to Freedom, also focuses on the legacy of political violence during the Cold War, except it's in Venezuela. So, Dr. Miller, I want to get your take on how Venezuela approached this transition to democracy differently than Colombia during the Cold War. Your book argues that a bipartisan effort by moderates in Venezuela facilitated this consolidation of democracy. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, um, and, and I, I got a lot of similarities when I was listening to uh, Dr. Carl. Um, in that you had this sort of um, older generation that had been involved in the peaceful agitation um, in the trienio in the late 40s and then um, coming into power in 58-59, the uh, AD COPE, the kind of Punto Fiel coalition. Um, and their experience was that, yeah, they had had some uh, sort of revolutionary background, but they were primarily a peaceful organization and so this younger generation uh, that had been part of the kind of AD youth felt as though this older generation had sort of sold out. Their frustration was in that they had perhaps seen a real democratic moment coming in 1958, but that had sort of faded away. And I think for them, their only solution was to move more toward uh, a Lucha Armada kind of violence. Um, and the ironic thing is that even many in the Venezuelan Communist Party sought political moderation um, and saw what Castro had done in Cuba as perhaps too much, too radical. Uh, so the sense here is that there was a movement toward democracy, that, but that it had, it had become frustrated or that these older leaders really didn't understand what it meant to be a truly democratic um, uh, government. And so in a sense then, their effort was to use violence as a way to discredit uh, the leadership and perhaps to foment sort of maybe a, a right-wing military coup, and then the public could become so frustrated with that that they would invite in this revolutionary young youth into a period of, of true democracy. Um, so this notion then of a incomplete consolidation, I would say, is, is what caused this um, rift between this older generation dedicated to moderation and this younger generation who saw that, again, as sort of a half-measure, not authentic, genuine democracy. I think you're right. You know, it's interesting to think how governing elites react to the threat of insurgent violence and how that can have long-lasting consequences on how disaffected or marginalized groups relate and articulate their grievances to the state. 
But it seems that despite the aggressive counterinsurgency campaign against the guerrillas, Venezuela ultimately incorporated former rebels into a developing liberal democracy. How this process came to be? How was a U.S.-aligned government able to avoid decades of interstate violence, as was the case in Colombia? Yes. So it seems to me then that um, within the uh, movement, even the younger generation, there was a sense that you know the Cuban Revolution had worked in Cuba because of these local conditions, but that once the government in Caracas and its U.S. allies became aware of how dangerous the revolution had become. They, they totally revolutionized their counterinsurgency units. The ability of these guerrillas to have any success really started to become limited by 65, 66, uh, 67. And to uh, Dr. Carl's point about these guerrillas being frustrated by being rained on out in the countryside, one of the uh, experiences I got in going through these memoirs uh, of these guerrillas, you know, the uh, Petkoffs, Bravo, again, uh, Marco Martin to some extent, was that they felt as though the world was saying, you guys are doing a good thing by having this revolution. But in fact, instead of any real success, they were out there, you know, with all kinds of horrible tropical diseases, getting uh, preyed upon by these new guerrilla units. And so many of them felt this myth of, if you just push harder on revolution, it'll happen. If you simply push harder on violence, this will achieve dividends, fell apart. And so by 1966, I would say half of the guerrilla movement simply said this is suicide and it makes much more sense to move back into peace and moderation after 19, the 1968 election. The new presidency uh, under Caldera kind of issued a sort of amnesty, if you will, or, or at least those that, that ended violence would not be prosecuted as much. And one of the things I recall, too, um, in terms of looking at these memoirs, was um, after the death of Che Guevara, uh, Fidel Castro had made these broadcasts um, you know, saying that 1968 is the year of the revolutionary fighter and you're on the verge of success and you simply need to push harder. And um, again, one of the memoirs that I recall reading was of these uh, guerrillas on the countryside sort of chuckling and, and laughing cynically when they heard these broadcasts of, of Castro saying, you're on the edge of victory, simply try a little bit harder. That's, that's my favorite anecdote from your book, Dr. Miller, I think, the one that really most stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and... I think in your case, you're talking about more of a rural uh, effort at first. In, in my case, it seemed like it was much more city dwellers that went into the countryside. And so they're starving and not used to being able to live out in the countryside, and no longer willing to put up with it. And so they sort of go back, go back home, if you will. What do you make of this, Dr. Carl? In post-conflict Venezuela, many former Marxist rebels went on to become highly respected politicians. We have Teodoro Petkov, Américo Martín, Douglas Bravo, Pompeyo Márquez... Uh, well, in Colombia, I can only think of Antonio Navarro Wolf and maybe Gustavo Petro. Even if this last one is deemed as polarizing to this day, do you think this is, like Dr. Miller argues, because there has been a lack of moderation by the likes of Petro? Or do you think there are systemic issues in Colombia's political system that undermines the insertion of former rebels into political life? Sure. Um yeah, we certainly see the the entry of former guerrilleros into politics um, in Colombia in the 1980s and 90s with the demobilization of the M19, um, whose origins I mentioned before, and you've cited some of their most famous um, politicians, many of whom fell victim to violence uh, in, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but we can actually point to an earlier precedent for this. So some of the rural fighters 
from the violencia period of the 1940s and 1950s who are affiliated with the Colombian Communist Party, they actually re-enter Colombian politics during the coalition government of the National Front in the late 1950s. Um, and the most famous example is um, an agrarian leader from the Sumapaz region near Bogotá uh, named Juan de la Cruz Varela. Um, who's really a, a fascinating, fascinating figure. Um, born a poor peasant, but sort of gets educated um, through church sermons and so on, really gains a, a broad conception of, of justice and of politics, um, leads agrarian mobilizations to help break up large coffee plantations in the Sumapaz in the 1930s into the 1940s, um, becomes an acolyte of the dissident liberal politician Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, whose assassination in 1948 really helps to worsen the violence um, throughout the countryside. Uh, and at that point, Varela joins the Communist Party and becomes the leader of a ar major armed resistance movement that demobilizes in 53. And I think one of the things that's not really appreciated is that he becomes uh, an alternate to Congress under the National Front period in the late 1950s. And there's certainly violence going back on in the Sumapaz. Um, he and his family survived several assassination attempts um, as we get into the 1960s. But we could look sort of across uh, the Colombian left. He's sort of an extreme example at one end of a former rural fighter who's able to integrate. Um, you get some left politicians uh, within the Liberal Party who aren't so much interested in, in armed struggle but are very critical of the existing system. And their Colombian political system, the National Front, really shows a remarkable ability to absorb some of these dissident elements um, into the political system. So, you know, even as we get into the post-Cuban Revolution period after 1959, into the 1960s, um, you have communists and socialists in Colombia's Congress participating in, um, say, the land, the agrarian reform proposals of the early 1960s as we're getting into, again, the age of the Alliance for Progress. Um, so while there is a lot of um, exclusion, I think we need to, to think very carefully about where our understandings come about uh, in terms of how exclusionary it is and at what moments it's exclusionary. So to go back to my point earlier about the M19 shaping a lot of our ideas about violence existing in Colombia as a response to political exclusion, that's a narrative of their own experience beginning in the 1970s, um, and particularly the, the contested 1970 election, and the M19 forms a few years later. Um, so one of the things I think we have to be careful about, and I talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, we need to be careful to not read those narratives back onto the 1960s, onto this previous era of history, which can be challenging because these ideas are so powerful in, in the public sphere. And, and one thing I would add on to that, too, that makes me think, uh, it, it was not until 1961, 62, when the violence started to get more uh, widespread that um, <clears throat> Betancourt began to strip um, the Communist Party members of their uh, deputyships and of their seats in Congress, and in some cases, uh, the members of the uh, legislature had uh, immunity from prosecution. This kind of movement to, to violence in its opening stages was seen as kind of a fringe, um, and so even the Venezuelan Communist Party sort of had a uh, polite society mainstream uh, posture until, I would say, toward the election of 1963. So... Yeah, there's the violence going on, but in terms of the disenfranchisement of the left, I think that 
took a little bit, a little, a little bit of time after the 1958 uh, revolution. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Veneco Candanga, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements, Border Edition. You're listening to Veneco Candanga, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements in a special border edition. We're discussing transitions to democracy in Venezuela and Colombia with Ergon Storm Miller, author of Precarious Paths to Freedom, The United States, Venezuela, and the Latin American Cold War, and Robert Carl, author of Forgotten Peace, Reform, Violence, and the Making of Contemporary Colombia. I want to shift gears to talk more about transitional justice. In Colombia, there have been multiple efforts at creating transitional justice mechanisms to address the root causes of the conflict, even if attempts at land reform, truth commissions have been torpedoed throughout the years. So my question to Dr. Miller, do you think that the lack of transitional justice processes during the Cold War in Venezuela may be at the root of some of the conflict and perhaps democratic deficits that eventually unfolded in Venezuela? Um, yeah, I never got as much of a sense that land reform and that kind of thing were as critical. It seemed to me that the the big issue uh, in terms of the press and in terms of the criticism the criticisms that the um, communists, especially the revolutionary leftist movement made, having to do with the economy. How was unemployment doing? How was the price of oil doing? To what extent was the government able to provide services? managing economic frustration so that to me seemed to be the the bigger issue when the economy was improving the appeal of the far left to the public was weaker and then in times of economic unrest again when the oil price was uh, low or what have you that's where the communists appeared to be making more progress in their um, advertisement of themselves as the good way forward and the leadership as unable to get the country uh, moving again. And so, you know, that might be one thing that's often so unique about the Venezuelan experience is that the price of oil, you know, was a major factor in the success or, or lack thereof of the economy. And by the late 60s, not only had there been this frustration that violence hadn't really worked and the Venezuelan government and its allies in the United States had created better counterintelligence units, but also by 66, 67, 68, the oil prices were doing quite well and the budget of the country was um, sound. The overall macro scale of the economy to me seemed to be the bigger factor than any frustration in the countryside because of lack of land. And indeed, in many cases, many of the leftists felt frustrated because they could never have any success at sort of politicizing the peasantry, that the peasantry didn't really seem to care much about what was going on in the cities, that they had their own set of economic issues and imperatives. All right, so let's tie these two countries together on that last point by Dr. Miller, because Venezuela and Colombia are often referred as sister nations, 
they're separated by its vast rivers and mountains, but also by the evolution of their politics. And as we look toward more recent years, it has become increasingly clear that the need for some sort of democratic transition that acknowledges all political constituencies in both countries is paramount in order for both countries to move forward. In Colombia, for instance, we're seeing how the government of Ivan Duque is around the hip, the what's known as the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz, the tribunals for investigating atrocities committed by all sides of the conflict. While in Venezuela, there are also no signs of a serious negotiated solution out of the current crisis. So, Dr. Carl, is the future really so bleak? Are we entering a new Cold War in Latin America where conflict is inevitable and there are no serious efforts at, say, truth-digging and reconciliation? Well, I think one important difference to note uh, that I focus on in my book is in terms of the international context. So for talking about the transitions to democracy in Colombia and in Venezuela in the 1950s and 60s, there isn't yet an international model for transitional justice. There's no international criminal court saying, okay, if you guys don't uh, resolve these war crimes prosecutions, we are going to come in um, and indict these former officials or army officials or guerrilleros or what have you. I don't think the region is going to... undergo the same historical process in terms of a lack of transitional and other forms of justice. You know, that said, the sort of the rightward swing that we've seen in Latin America over the last couple of years and the alignment of Duque in Colombia, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil against the Chavista uh, political project in Venezuela, I mean, that's that's a level of polarization I don't think the region has seen in a number of years. And one more comment I would make there is it's very interesting to think about sort of a counterfactual. What might have happened with, say, the Colombian peace process if Duque's government hadn't come to power or if more time had elapsed between the signing of the peace accord and the next presidential transition in Colombia? So to cite the historical example, in 1962, uh, Orlando Falsborda and his who's a the the founder of modern Colombian sociology, he and his colleagues at the National University in Bogota published uh, the groundbreaking first of two volumes, a book called La Violencia in Colombia, so the classic social science study of the violence of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And it really sparks a lot of national interest and sort of provokes this conversation about ideas of violence that hadn't quite been able to occur um, a couple years earlier in the democratic transition, because again, it was a very improvisational time where there weren't international models around truth commissions or transitional justice to subscribe to. Um, The problems for Fosborda and this broader conversation about justice and violence and who bore responsibility for the murder of perhaps as many as 180, 200,000 largely peasants in the countryside over the course of the mid-1940s to the the late 1950s. Um, The problem for this conversation is that the National Front's first presidential succession comes about. It's 1962. Because of the power-sharing rules, a conservative has to be elected president. So the parliament, uh, Congress is split 50-50 under the rules of the National Front power-sharing agreement, but the conservative party sort of gains a new ascendancy because they are in control of the executive branch. And it's a very polarizing moment 
Um, and this book about violence triggers a national political crisis. So there are rumors um, in the, the later months of 1962 that there's uh, the government has censored the book. It's pulled it off the shelves. Uh, and by November of 62, as the discussion sort of flares up again, there are rumors of a coup, that the con- radical conservatives are upset with their own president and they're going to work with elements of the military to overthrow the government. Um, so there are tanks put out on the street on a Saturday night to keep the government in power. So it's a really remarkable moment where the politics of the past came to inflect upon the politics of the the present then. And I think we can talk about a similar process happening in Colombia now, where the resurgence of Uribismo under the Duque administration um, has curtailed these discussions and these institutions that had come about under Santos and through the peace process. So to wrap up this conversation, I want to end in a forward-looking note for both Colombia and Venezuela. Dr. Miller, can you give us your thoughts on what lessons can 2019 Venezuela learn from both the mistakes and what it got right in its violent past, from the polarization you described in your book, and how it can better transition to an inclusive democracy? It's interesting because looking at the, the, the Cold War ideological struggle, yeah, there seem to be a knowable binary choices, a democracy... Or communism, um, and that these were ideas that could be given some sort of coherence. That that it was a worldview that could make sense for for one side or another. And, and perhaps the the lesson that maybe we, we could learn today is that despite its flaws, its sort of clumsiness, this dedication by um, Cope, AD, and at least for a little while the URD under Villalba was that there was more that could be done by working together to solve problems than by, again, shattering the system. I think everyone could agree in the late 50s and early 60s that you know, Marcos Perez Jimenez was a, a bad leader and that you didn't want a tyranny, that you wanted to have some kind of popular government and that you would need to cooperate in that experiment. This was an experiment that was too important to allow to fail and that was durable through 10, 15 years of incredible violence and incredible pressure on Venezuela from the Soviet Union, from communist China, certainly from Castro and Cuba, and it endured quite well. So if that sort of cooperative coalition could survive those sort of conditions, I, I would hope that in the post-Cold War era, that kind of coalition could emerge with the same commitment to cooperation, the same commitment to the success of this experiment. Same question to you, Dr. Carl. What can Colombia learn from its violent past in order to avoid falling into this never-ending cycle of violence so that marginalized groups, whether it's demobilized insurgents or social leaders, don't bear the brunt of institutionalized violence? Right. So I... Just to follow up on Dr. Miller's point, uh, I think the international context as compared to the 1950s and 60s is, first of all, important here, where you had these coalition governments in Colombia and Venezuela that were able to survive in part because you had a very active, helpful government in Washington, relatively speaking. Whereas now, uh, with the current administration, it seems like there's only an interest in driving Maduro from power, that you're not seeing this sort of positive foreign policy apparatus around developmental aid and so on that benefited 
the survival of both the Punto Fijo and the Frente Nacional PACs um, in, in the two countries in the 50s and 60s. Now, in terms of sort of other historical lessons that, that Colombia can draw, I think the pressure of the international community and international funding is going to be crucial for avoiding um, a repeat, say, of the genocide against the Union Patriotica, like as happened in Colombia in the 1980s and 90s. The Duque administration it's already shown that it's not able uh, or interested in protecting community leaders and social activists in the countryside. And for that matter, the Santos administration showed a similar uh, weakness and lack, lack of interest. But on the other hand, the transitional justice mechanism, the HEP, which you already mentioned, it's going forward, whatever the Duque administration's objections to the current bill are. It's already operating. So it just recently, in the last couple of weeks, launched an investigation precisely into the violence against um, the patriotic union that I just referenced. So whatever pressures there are on um, the peace process politically, there are ways in which it's already been um, written into the institutional and juridical fabric of the country in ways that are going to move forward. And account for the violence of the past, bring about some forms of reckoning and justice in ways that haven't happened previously, which will hopefully have a beneficial effect on the democratic system at large. All right, so we're going to leave it there. Great discussion. Venezuela and Colombia truly are two countries with fascinating histories, but unfortunately plagued by the specter of violence and institutional dysfunction. I want to thank my guest, Aragorn Storm Miller, lecturer at Central Texas College and author of Precarious Paths to Freedom, the United States, Venezuela, and the Latin American Cold War. On the other end, we had Robert Carl, assistant professor of history at Princeton University and the author of Forgotten Peace, Reform, Violence, and the Making of Contemporary Colombia. And finally, I don't want to end this episode without also thanking everyone for tuning in and everyone involved in making this episode possible. Special thanks to Amazonic Vibes for the fantastic Linux theme song. And this was episode 6 of Veneco Candanga, Border Edition, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements. Gentlemen, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.